0: So we turn now to God's Word. You can see in your bulletin that we're turning now to Romans, chapter 8. And why are we turning here this morning? Well, last Sunday morning, our theme was the resurrection. Our theme was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And remember what we talked about last Sunday morning. We talked about how Jesus was raised from the dead, and he was raised in order to reign. And he is right now, reigning over all things, reigning over you and me. So that was last week, the resurrection. And it was in the course of our sermon discussion, on the heels of that, that this passage in Romans 8 came up. Because when we think about the resurrection of Jesus in the past, it is perfectly natural and eminently biblical that our minds go from his resurrection in the past to our own in the future. That our minds should go from Christ's work, including his resurrection, round about 2,000 years ago, to our own resurrection at the end of the age and all that will go along with it. So then, Romans 8 came up in our sermon discussion last Sunday when the resurrection was our theme. And I thought what we would do this Sunday would be to take that passage and move it front and center and train our attention on it. So that's why we're turning to Romans 8 today. We are going to focus on Paul's words beginning at verse 18, but I'll back up for the sake of our reading to verse 12. So listen now to the Word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your Word and for how it strengthens and stirs hope within. And we pray that it might do that now, that we might go our way this morning, a more hopeful people having met with you, having heard your voice, And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. It is rarely the case, it's the exception and not the rule, that a preacher uses an illustration in a sermon, and you remember that illustration 25 years later. That is not usually how it works. But every once in a while, it happens. Every once in a while, you experience the exception and not the rule. A preacher uses an illustration in a sermon, and it sticks. And maybe it even sticks for 25 years. And I remember one from around 25 years ago. I was a student in seminary. And it was a chapel message at the seminary. The preacher was from Scotland. And so the sermon illustration was taken from the British television program, Doctor Who. In the USA, we don't often get sermon illustrations from Doctor Who. But that day, we did. And so that day, I learned about Doctor Who. And here's what I learned. Doctor Who in Doctor Who, travels Space and Time, in this special space and time travel machine that from the outside looks like an ordinary police phone booth. And I know even as I'm describing it, a number of you are picturing it right now. But then when you step inside, it turns out that appearances were deceiving. It turns out that it's a whole lot bigger than it looked from the outside. When you step inside, It turns out that it is, in fact, an expansive space-and-time travel machine. And that day in chapel around about 25 years ago, the point of the illustration was this. The gospel is like that, the good news of salvation. The gospel turns out to be so much more grand and glorious on the inside than it ever appeared from the outside. The good news of the gospel, it looks a certain way to the unbeliever. It even has a certain appearance to the new believer. But when you've climbed in and stayed in, when you've given it time and thought, when you've given it faith and experience, that's when you realize there's so much more here than I realized. That's when you begin to say, I had no idea how great the good news is. It's the surprising grandeur of the gospel. And the reason that I shamelessly recycle that sermon illustration this morning is that this passage here in Romans 8 shows us that, shows us the surprising grandeur of the gospel. Because here Paul in Romans 8, here he's reflecting upon the reality of, that we are the children of God, right? That's his theme here. And as Christians, we might have certain notions in our minds as to what it means to be the children of God. And then we read Romans 8, and this passage expands our horizons. It stretches our understanding of what it means to be the children of God because what we learn here is that there are future blessings in store That come along with being a child of God. That for too many Christians are barely on the radar screen. And we shouldn't settle for that. We want our understanding of what it means to be the children of God. Including what's in store for us. To be as as grand and glorious and expansive as the Bible would have it to be. So. We'll reflect upon Paul's words this morning in that spirit. First of all, we're going to focus on the future blessings that are in store, and there are two of them that I want to highlight. And then second of all, we're going to see what the impact is on us now as we contemplate the things that are in store. So future hope, that'll be first, and then present impact, that'll be second. So first of all, what's in store? What's in store for us as the children of God at the end of the age? Well, when you climb in and stay in and look around at the reality of our adoption, there are two future blessings in store that Paul brings out and that I want to bring out as well. The first of them is this, the renewal of the world. When you you climb into the reality of our being the children of God and you look around, that's the first thing that meets our gaze here in Romans 8. What's in store for us is nothing less than the renewal of the world itself. Listen again to how Paul puts it, beginning in verse 19. He says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole created order, thanks to our fall into sin and and the curse that God justly imposed in the wake of our fall into sin, the whole created order is burdened under the weight of futility and corruption. There's a sense in which things now are not the way they're supposed to be. The whole of the created order is racked with frustration and failure and disaster and disease. And so Paul pictures creation. He personifies it as waiting eagerly. Waiting eagerly for the day when it is going to be set free from the way things are now. Now, the Bible does not go into... Clinical, straightforward detail about what the liberation of creation is going to involve at the end of the age. In some way or another, just piecing together the clues, in some way or another, it must be that at the end of the age, God's going to exercise his power toward creation itself so that it ends up having a glory, a beauty that it has never had before so that there's no futility in it anymore, no corruption any longer. So Paul personifies creation as waiting eagerly for that day of being set free, and then notice the twist. This is one of the things I love about this passage. Because what Paul says here is that creation is waiting eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So he personifies creation as waiting eagerly, and what it's waiting for is the day when we are revealed as the children of God. We're going to be unveiled on that day, that last day, because we're going to be acknowledged by God. We're going to be displayed by God as the result of his handiwork. So that day's coming, and here's why that's a twist. Just think about the question, why is creation longing for that? I was even thinking we should have turned all the blinds today so that you could get a good view of all the trees out there, because we're going to carry on a kind of conversation this morning with the trees. Why does creation care about us and the prospect of our own revealing, our own unveiling at the end of the age? What's creation gonna get out of our revealing. What's the connection? Well, for starters, the connection is this. It's simply chronological. The day that we're revealed, that's going to be the same day, the same time when creation is set free. So there's that chronological connection. It's all gonna happen at the same time when Jesus comes back. So for that reason alone, it makes sense that the tree Are waiting eagerly for our revealing. It's as if creation gets it. It's as if creation understands the way Paul is personifying it. But then we can take it a step further. It's not just that those two things are going to happen at the same time creation being set free and and our own revealing, it's also that creation's liberation is going to be a part of our revelation. Think about it. We won't be fully revealed as the children of God until we have finally been given a home that's worthy of us, worthy of the children of God, and it's going to be this world made new. There's a coronation coming up on the calendar. Maybe you've heard Well, think about a coronation. You can put a crown on a man's head and call him king. But he hasn't truly, fully been revealed as king until he arrives at the palace and crosses the threshold and dwells there and reigns there and thrives there. That's when it's made clear like it was never clear before that's when he has been revealed like he was never revealed before because now he's been given a home that's worthy of him and he's moved in. So that there's this match now between the world that he inhabits and his own glory to. That's why creation is longing for our revelation. That's why creation, as Paul puts it here, is groaning To obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Imagine carrying on a conversation with the trees, with creation. And you pose the question. Why do you want to obtain the freedom of our glory? Don't you want your own? Creation answers back. Child of God. Don't you get it? Your glory is my own. Because we're all in this together. The earth says I was made for you. And then, child of God, you were made from me in the beginning, made from my dust. Well, one day, child of God, I shall be remade for you in the end. We're all in this together. And the point is, we ought to think about this as an aspect of what it means to be a child of God. If that's true of me, if I'm a child of God by the grace of God, Well, then it's got to be that someday God is going to glorify the world. It has to be. Why? Because the world, the way it is right now, burdened, groaning, wracked with futility and corruption, the world as it is right now is not worthy, not fitting to be the everlasting residence of the children of God. Things cannot stay this way. So the renewal of the world, that's the first, under our initial heading of the glory and store. The renewal of the world is first. And then here's the second, and it goes right with it. It's the resurrection of the body. And this is why I wanted to keep going with this theme this Sunday after last Sunday. It's the resurrection of the body. Our bodies at the end of the age. Look again at verse 23. Verse 23, Paul says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So here too, Paul is pointing us forward, all the way forward, to the day when Christ is going to come back. Because one of the things that's going to happen when he comes back is that Christ is going to give us our bodies back. And not just give them back. But he's going to give us our bodies with a glory that they never had before. Our bodies are finally going to be imperishable and glorious and powerful like the body of Jesus now. And brothers and sisters, this too is an aspect of what it means to be a child of God. The logic's the same. If I'm a child of God and by the grace of God I am, then it simply has to be that before all is said and done, the body will be raised. The logic's the same, because the body as it is right now, perishable, dishonorable, natural, weak, it's not worthy. It's not fitting to serve as the everlasting garment of a child of God. And so it has to be that at the end of the age, we will be raised glorified bodily because we're the children of God. So that's why Paul can say here in this verse, verse 23, that what we're looking forward to as a future prospect is adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about our adoption as something future, and he's linking it up with the resurrection of our bodies. So that if you can imagine carrying on a conversation now, not with the trees, but with Paul, and saying, Paul, I don't get it. You're talking about my adoption as a future prospect. I thought I was a child of God already. What gives? Paul would answer back, yes, you are a child of God already, comma, but... But your sonship won't really be complete until you're dressed like one. Until you look like one, your experience as a child of God won't really be complete until you are clothed with a body that is imperishable and glorious and powerful, like the body that Jesus has now. So, the resurrection of the body and the renewal of the world, both of those are in store and they go together the end of the age, that is how grand our hope is. That's how cosmic as well as physical our hope is. And brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you at this point. So our first point this morning has been... The glory that's in store for us as the children of God, and it's a twofold glory. The renewal of the world, the resurrection of the body. I want to challenge you at this point. Does your own sense of hopefulness for the future as a child of God, is it that rich? Is it that full? What does it mean to you that you're a child of God? Certainly it means that you've been welcomed into the family of God. Certainly it means that you are now the object of the fatherly favor of God. All of that's true. But do you grasp what that means? What it means is that one day he's going to renew the world for you. And he's going to raise you bodily so that you are human. Body and soul like never before. Does your own hopefulness as a child of God, your own hopefulness for the future, go that far? Or does, and I want to challenge you here, does your thinking about what's in store for you practically stop with the prospect of going to be with Jesus right after death with your body still in the ground? Now, obviously, that's a staggering prospect. The thought of going to be with Jesus. Immediately through death, your body's still in the ground here. But if your understanding of Christian hope doesn't go any farther than that, then it doesn't go as far as Romans 8 would have it go. Don't hold on to a sense of hope that falls short of Paul's staggering language here in Romans 8. Hold on to a hope that goes all the way, all the way to a new world and a new body Because in Romans 8, it really is as grand and glorious as that. So that's our future hope as the children of God. And that brings us secondly then to this. The present impact that that hope has. What does it do to us now? What does it cause? What does it bring about in our lives now just to know that that hope's in store. Well, what it does, according to Paul here in Romans 8, is this, it makes us groan. That's the present impact, according to Romans 8, of our future hope. It makes us groan. Creation is personified as groaning For the last day in this passage. And we're groaning for it as well. And what is this groaning? It's that deep, inward expression of emotion that's too deep for words. And you know, maybe you know this from your own experience, sometimes it doesn't stay inward. Sometimes you feel it so acutely that you actually audibly hear it welling up within your own soul and crossing your own lips the sound of that groaning. And we learn here in Romans 8 where this groaning comes from, what accounts for it. This groaning, this Romans 8 groaning, is the sound that you hear at the intersection of pain and hope. It's the sound that you hear at the intersection of pain and hope. It's what you hear where pain and hope meet. Pain because you have a deep sense that things are not now the way they're supposed to be. But also hope because you have an even deeper sense that one day they will be. And that's what makes you groan where pain and hope meet. And so there's a wonderful irony here about the gospel and what it does to us, the impact that it has on us. Strictly speaking, it's not true to say, and so we shouldn't put it this way, that for the believer, the gospel makes things worse. It is, after all, gospel, which means good news. So it can't be the case that the gospel makes things worse But it is certainly true to say that for the believer, the gospel is so good that it makes him groan. The irony of the gospel is that it actually has the effect of making us feel more pained by the way the world is now, by the way our bodies are now. And that's because the gospel wakes us up. The gospel has the effect of waking us up and making us realize in a new way just how wide is the gulf between the way things are now and the way they're supposed to be, the way one day they will be. And so it's actually a good sign that you feel that and that it makes you groan. Every once in a while, you you, you come across in the news One of those hard medical stories about a child who was born with a rare condition that makes it so that his body doesn't feel pain. And at first you hear that and you think, sign me up. That'd be fantastic. Right? To be pain-free. To be able to go through this life without having to worry about feeling physical pain. Wouldn't that be great? Would that be great? Then you keep reading the article and you read what the parents have to say about what it's like to have a child whose body doesn't feel physical pain and they are not saying, this is great. It's a nightmare. It's terrifying. Every day. Why? Because in a world like this one, we're supposed to feel pain. And it's actually dangerous if we don't. What those parents wouldn't give for their child to be able to feel physical pain for the very first time. Well, the same thing's true spiritually. We're supposed to groan. It's a good sign when you feel that and when you hear it welling up from within. We're supposed to groan. We ought to be pained by the futility and the corruption that shackles creation. We ought to be pained by the realities of physical decay and death. It's not that pain itself is a good thing. It's not. And that's why we're longing for the world to come where there won't be any anymore. But it's that the capacity to be pained by that which is truly painful, that's the way we ought to be. And that's what the gospel does to us more and more. It sharpens our senses. This is actually one of the glories of the gospel that we preach, that we proclaim to the world. It would... Admittedly, be a rather offbeat evangelistic appeal, but it's true. The church can say to the world, the Christian can say to the non-Christian, come to Christ, and I promise you, you will feel pains that you've never felt before. You will groan like never before. It's like when somebody works out after they haven't worked out for a long time and the next morning, what are they saying? They're saying, I'm feeling pains in places I didn't even know it was possible to feel pain. I'm feeling in places I didn't even know I had. Well, come to Christ. Come in and stay in. Give it time and experience. Give it a lifetime. And you will feel pains that you never knew were possible, but you'll also have a hope that prevails. The hope of a day, a world, when you will not feel those pains anymore, and you'll have that hope because you'll be a child of God come to him. And so we need to put to death any notion that groaning like this is somehow beneath the dignity of the child of God, as if, no, no, we ought to be more composed than that, or that it manifests a sinful discontentment with the ways of God. There is a world of difference between this kind of groaning, holy Romans 8 groaning, and the kind of sinful grumbling that we do come across now and then in the Bible and in our own lives, a world of difference. And to get clear on that, all you've got to do is think about Jesus and his own example, his own model. Jesus is our model for groaning. Because make no mistake, you read through the gospel accounts of his life and ministry, Jesus groaned. But he never grumbled. Jesus sighed. But he never sinned in his sighing. Jesus wept, but he never whined. Jesus sweat drops of blood on the ground, but he never once shook his fist at heaven. And here's the key. That was true of him as someone who grasped the gospel. Now, obviously, he didn't grasp it as a redeemed sinner the way we do. He grasped it as the divine redeemer. But that's just it. Was there ever anyone who realized the way Jesus did, how yawning is the gulf between the way things are now and the way things are supposed to be, the way things will be. That's what made him groan. The gospel writers tell us, unapologetically, that he wept and sighed. The writer of Hebrews tells us clearly, Hebrews 5, 7, that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And you know, when he wept, he wept with all his heart and soul and mind and strength. The fact that he was the Son of God and that he had a perfect grasp of the gospel, that didn't make his weeping half hearted, didn't mean that he was somehow untouchable by the pain. To the contrary, it made his weeping more intense than yours or mine has ever been. Whatever precisely he looked like and sounded like, we don't know, we don't need to. But what it felt like for him, that we have never known, and we never will. So you look at Jesus, and you're reminded, don't be ashamed to groan. Sometimes even out loud. Don't think that you ought to be above it because you're a Christian. Don't be ashamed to groan. And the more you fix your eyes on what's in store, even the renewal of the world and the resurrection of the body, and the more you look around and see how desperately this world needs to be renewed, And how much your own body needs to be raised, the more you will groan. But in this life, in this world, with this body, that's a good thing. And Jesus leads the way. When we got started today, I said it was around 25 years ago that I heard that sermon illustration driving home the idea that the gospel is, is greater on the inside than it might appear from the outside. Twenty-five years ago, that illustration from Doctor Who, and I still remember it. Most likely, 25 years from now, you are not going to remember this worship service. And that's okay. I wonder what you remember from 1998, 25 years ago. The top grossing film was Titanic. The top show on TV was ER. And Pete Sampras won his fifth Wimbledon title. And I didn't remember any of that. I had to look it all up. Thank God for Wikipedia. But that's just it. We don't remember much as the years go by. I do remember I got married in 1998. Do do remember that. Next month, we're coming up on 25 years. But apart from that, how much really? So the real question is not 25 years from now, are you going to remember this worship service? The real question is 25 years from now, assuming you're still alive here, are you going to be more in awe of the gospel than you are today? Are you going to realize then more than you do today, just how grand the gospel really is, just how glorious and impressive the good news is. Are you going to be groaning then more than you are today? And isn't it so wonderfully counterintuitive that the gospel actually makes us want that? We want it to be the case. That with the passage of time, years from now, we'll be groaning more intensely for the world to come. Wouldn't that be great? So, brothers and sisters, lift your heads. Lift your heads from the present. Lift them up and look down the horizon. Look way, way down. Down to the most distant horizon you can imagine in this life. And then, look farther. Look with the eyes of faith and see the life to come, see the world to come, see the body to come and groan for it and be assured that day is coming when faith will give way to sight and groaning will give way to singing. Nothing but singing because the gospel really is that great. And amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we do thank you that you've made us your children. And we're reminded this morning of what that means. It means that there is in store for us the renewal of the world and the resurrection of the body. And even as we consider these things, we groan because of what the world is like now, because of what our bodies are like now, we groan. For we stand today at the intersection of pain and hope. And then we fix our eyes on Christ who led the way. A sympathetic high priest at your right hand who remembers. Who remembers the days of his own weeping, sighing, groaning. And who holds on to us now so that we press on. Lord Jesus, hold on to us now that we might press on. Amen.